Hi, Jim Kosho here from Dunn Lumber. Welcome to today's Dunn Solutions Podcast, where we're committed to providing cutting-edge industry knowledge for the building contractor and trade professional. Today we'll hear from Scott Hildebrand, an attorney and government affairs consultant in Western Washington. As a government affairs consultant, Scott represents various entities before state and local government bodies and agencies. Previous to that, Scott was Director of Public Policy and Association Council for the Master Builders Association of King and Snohomish Counties. In that role, he was able to influence legislation that greatly helped the building industry. In this podcast, Scott will be sharing with us how to protect yourself from liability when hiring trade contractors. Scott will also cover the following. What constitutes a binding contract? Are verbal contracts legally enforceable? And what are the top 10 things not to do when hiring trade contractors? If you have additional questions for Scott on this topic, please go to starboard-strategies.com. And to attend a future product information breakfast, you can email me at jimc at dunlumber.com. So I thought I would start the presentation with a couple of disclaimers. In many cases, you don't have to hire a lawyer. There are services out there, Rocket Lawyer and LegalZoom and other things that are really quite quite good. Uh, I like to tell my clients that they're about 85% right. So the question is, if you're okay with 85%, and some people are, that's that's terrific. Um, The 15% that you aren't, you might get bitten, but hopefully you're you know, you're going to make the, you're going to make the choice that, that you need to because uh, sometimes you can get away with those programs out there. Um, if you, if you uh, do use a lawyer, check them out. Uh, every lawyer has a, has a disciplinary record. Uh, it's either blank, as mine is, thankfully, or it's got something there. And if it's got something there, you want to, you want to check them out, uh, talk to their clients, figure out what it is that they're good at and what they're not so good at. Um, uh, as I said, boilerplate forms are, are generally pretty good, and the, uh, the disclaimer that every lawyer needs to present to any crowd that they're talking to is that this is not intended to be specific legal advice. So I'm going to give you some, some uh, uh, tips and tricks to understanding contracts and understanding uh, how to go about your business, whether you be a contractor or something else. Um, I do want to take a, a, a minute just to thank the master builders. Uh, as Tracy said, I was here for nearly 15 years, uh, worked government relations, represented the industry down in Olympia. Uh, it was a great experience, great members. Uh, get involved if you're not involved. Get involved to a greater extent if you already are involved. Join if you're not a member. Uh, it's really a, a great organization to be a part of. And you've got such a terrific leader who's wearing this, who's wearing this, uh, this uh, neon green tonight. So it's good to see you, Joseph. Um, I wanted to, to present you with this picture. My dad was a Texan, and he used to come up with this Texas humor and, and folk sayings from time to time. What is that? That's a turtle on a fence post, right? And what do Texans say when they see a turtle on a fence post? They come to the conclusion he didn't get there by himself. So um, the reason for this slide is because I want to encourage you to get involved with the association. 
uh, whether you're, you are a contractor, whether you are a subcontractor, whether you are uh, a supplier, uh, associate member, you're not going to make it by yourself. And this is a slide that hopefully remember or reminds you of that. And get involved and, and do, uh, do what it is that you want to in the association. So I'm going to talk a little bit about contracts tonight. Uh, contracts are, are typically not the sexiest of subjects. However, uh, I am going to engage in a contract with somebody right now. So who can I pick on? Who can I pick on? I'll pick on you. Come on up. Come on up. Give her a hand. Give her a hand. And your name is? Michaelin Palmer. Michaelin. Well, thank you. All right. So I am going to enter into a contract with Michaelin, and we're going to go through some scenarios, just hopefully so that you understand what a contract is. Because how many people think that contracts are that big, and they're written in agate type, and they're written in Latin, and you can't read it? Anybody out there? No? A one? OK. Um, a contract is really a simple thing. So what we're going to do is the definition of a contract is an agreement between two or more parties requiring consideration. Consideration just means that you're obligating yourself to do something that you're not already obligated to do. So I can't enter into a contract with you that says if I continue breathing, you're going to give me $500 because if I didn't breathe, I'd die and I'm already obligated to do that. So Michael and I are going to enter into a contract. So I am going to give you $1 for you to do one jumping jack. <laughs> so, well, that's okay. One jumping jack. Right now, really? Right now, yeah. What if I hurt myself? Well, then, then we'll talk about that in the context of contracts. Okay, thank you. Okay, you can go sit down. No, 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 that's yours. That's yours. It's a, it's a valid contract. So. The, the point is, that is a valid contract. I gave her a dollar in exchange for her to do a jumping jack for me, for whatever reason. Um, now, if she wouldn't have done the jumping jack and taken my dollar, she would have what? Breached the contract, right? Pretty simple. What if I gave her the dollar and she said, I ain't going to do your jumping jack. That's, a, that's another kind of breach. That's a specific kind of breach. It's um, called an anticipatory breach. So if somebody tells you if, you, if you engage in a contract with them and you give them consideration and they say, I can't do that job for whatever reason, that's an anticipatory breach. Um, let's talk about what was the time frame, sir? Uh, the question that I have is that was a verbal contract, not a written Correct, and we'll get to that. That is incorrect. That is incorrect. And we'll talk about that. And one of these slides talks about oral contracts. Um, so what if, what if, uh, well, let's go back to the time element. How much time did she have to do the jumping jack? Yeah. Would it have been reasonable for her to stand around for a week as I'm letting her, you know, would that be reasonable? Probably not for a, for a jumping jack. You know, a minute, two minutes, something like that. The point here is that if you don't have time in a contract, what a judge will do or what a court will do 
is it will put in a reasonable period of time. If you are shipping dozens of eggs, for instance, would it be reasonable for those eggs to arrive six months later? No. Milk, would it be reasonable for milk to arrive six months later? No. Um, so what the court will do is it will impose a reasonable time period. So in this case, you know, a minute, two, three, five, ten, maybe, uh, sitting around all day waiting for her to do a jumping jack probably wouldn't have, wouldn't have been kosher. Um, she what? But she just ate. She just ate. And she, could, and she could have refused the contract because I made an offer. She accepted. And she accepted by doing the jumping jack. And I appreciate that. Um, so uh, what if, what if instead of doing the jumping jack she did, what if she did this? Is that a jumping jack? It's not a very good jumping jack. It's, it's important, however, that when you make a contract, you understand what it is that you're, you're bargaining for and what it is that, that it means, which is why you contractors out there, raise your hand, contractors. Somebody says, put an addition on my, you know, I, I want a bedroom addition. Now, do you, does that mean anything at all to you other than I should be doing some work generally that they want a bedroom addition, but I, I have absolutely no idea what they're doing? So you go out and you build a five foot by five foot bedroom addition and you say, yeah, good, that's it. You did a bedroom addition, you never had a meeting of the minds. So it's important when you write a contract with anybody that you have a meeting of the minds. It's going to be however big it is. It's going to have this type of finish. It's going to be done in a certain manner. Um, you know, that, that sort of thing. So uh, that's another aspect of contracts. What if she would have said, like she did, it was kind of, a, kind of what she did, you know, oh, I just ate. What if she said, oh, jumping jacks, I don't like to do jumping jacks, I just ate. Okay. Is that still a valid acceptance? It's one of my favorite terms that I learned in law school. It's called a grumbling acceptance. And it's still an acceptance. So if you're dealing with someone and they say, oh, that price is too high, and oh, geez, I'm not sure I want to go through with that. Oh, it really should be red, but uh, okay, fine. That's still an acceptance. It's called a grumbling acceptance. It's one of the more colorful terms in, in law school. What if she would have stood up here and done this? Now, what the heck are you doing? Well, where I come from, that's a jumping jack. Again, that's a failure to, of the minds to meet. And there's a very illustrative case in the law where somebody was going to send chickens, and <clears throat> they contracted for the sale of chickens. And what the person who was, who was expecting the chickens clearly expected was, freshly butchered chickens. And what he got was a ship full of canned chickens. So there's a, there's a whole uh, deal in law school about what is a chicken? So what is uh, a jumping jack? What is it that you're bargaining for specifically? Oral contracts. Yes, oral contracts are enforceable. Absolutely enforceable. They're harder to enforce because it's not written down, 
and you have to go to the court and, and convince them that there's a contract, but <clears throat> you can do that in, in certain ways. There's a thing called the statute of frauds that, that specifically with respect to real estate, real estate contracts have to be in writing, which doesn't mean that they're not enforceable, but they have to be in writing. You can overcome that with an argument called promissory estoppel. Promissory estoppel says, I would, I would not have behaved in the manner that I behaved in had I not been expecting a contract. So, and the, the, the technical term is detrimental reliance. So here's a scenario for you. Guy shows up, gal shows up, whoever, um, says, uh, I want to paint your house. You engage in a discussion with them. You come to a conclusion that you're going to spend $500 for this person to paint your house. And over the weekend, you think about it. They're supposed to be back on Monday morning. And Sunday night, you decide, nah, I, don't want, I don't want my house to be painted. You don't communicate it. On Monday, that person shows up with buckets full of paint, ladders, rollers, whatever you need to paint the house. And you say, nope, deal's off. Now, what does that person need to prove? They need to prove that they detrimentally relied on your offer. So in the case of a painting contractor, you probably couldn't make what you paid for ladders because you're going to use ladders for other stuff. You probably couldn't get back your paint rollers because you're going to use paint rollers for other stuff. But if you contracted for, you know, sandstone 234 paint, and that person shows up with that paint, some, something that's custom made, they have an argument that if they didn't have an agreement, they wouldn't show up with this custom made paint. And they may be entitled to this thing called quantum merit. Quantum merit just means whatever it was that you expended in, in anticipation of the contract. So, so that's important. So how do you get around this? Um, I'll talk about this uh, in several slides here. Best practices. And I love this first one because this actually comes from a client of mine. Uh, she called me up and she said, I have a dispute with my contractor. And I said, okay, great. Um, I, I represent a lot of uh, uh, rehabbers, small developers, uh, landlords, that sort of thing. So she calls me up. She says, I have a problem with my contractor. I said, okay, fine. Let's sit down and talk. So first question I ask is, can I see a copy of the contract? And she says, which one? And I knew things were difficult to begin with because when a, when a client says which one, it's indicative of several odd things. And I said, well, what do you mean which one? And she said, mine are, mine are his. And I said, huh? And, and she said, well, I signed his contract and he signed my contract. Reduce it to one document, please. I'm sure that all of you do that in practice anyway, but it's just a humorous story that I just can't get over, and I just kind of sat there slack-jawed for a little while, and I said, really? You signed his, and he signed yours. Really? Hmm. So in that case, you've got <clears throat> two different agreements. Whatever's common to those agreements is agreed to, and whatever's not common to those agreements is not agreed to. So in this case, she was able to uh, get things solved, and, and it didn't cause too much of a difficulty. Same. Same what? Same date they were signed? Does that make a difference? Uh, it, I, I don't recall if it was, but it really doesn't make a difference. Um, so one, one document, please. 
Uh, communication to the other party memorializing the agreement in some manner. Ideally, you want the other party to sign a contract. If they don't sign the contract, uh, there are other techniques that you can use to make a contract a little bit more enforceable, and there's a whole continuum in the law between a properly documented, a properly drawn contract that's signed by both parties and a hearsay oral agreement that's pretty flimsy. And I'll talk about how to, how to move down that continuum toward a contract if that's what you want to do. Um, you can write a memo to file. You can email that person. In fact, this is probably the best way. If there's no way that you can get a contract signed right away, if you've, if you've come to an agreement with someone, you can email them and say, hey, Joe, we talked about this. Not you, Joe, any Joe. Um, <laughs> but we talked about this, and here's the agreement that we came up with. So I'm going to have you do X work, Y work, Z work, and you're going to get paid, and you're going to get paid here, here, and here. And uh, if anything's wrong with my interpretation, please let me know. Well, that is admissible in a court as a contract, arguably. Because if the other person didn't say, no, that's not the agreement, it's presumed that you had an agreement. So if you're in a situation where you can't get a signature or, or whatever, that's one way to make an oral agreement a little bit stickier. And then finally, anything that indicates that you relied on a contract, if it's notes in a journal, if it's receipts, Anything that proves what you said, why you said it, and did what you did is better than an oral agreement that is just left to lie. So you don't necessarily need a countersigned document. It's helpful. It's the most, it's the most enforceable contract. Um, but these other, these other contracts or these other techniques will at least solidify your case if your contract is challenged. In, in negotiating a contract, there's a few basics. And that is, um, number one is, make sure you're working with someone who has the capacity to contract. So I don't know how many of you have ever gone out and looked at a job and bid with perhaps a wife who is, whose husband is unaware of what you're doing, or vice versa, or, or what have you. Um, make sure that whoever you're contracting with actually has the capacity to contract. It's, it's a good safety tip. Make sure everyone is properly identified in the paperwork. So if you're making a contract with, you know, Janie Sue, write in Janie Sue. If it's an LLC, write in the LLC. If, you, if you're making a contract with an LLC and you, wanna, you want a personal guarantee, make sure that's in the, in the paperwork. Make sure the payment obligations are stated clearly because sometimes what contractors will do is they'll say, well, I want $50,000 for this piece of work. It's not clear how they're going to get paid, when they're going to get paid, what the, what the progress chart looks like, that sort of thing. Make sure that you write it down. Um, lien releases. This is something that drives consumers nuts and it drives you guys nuts too liens, how they work. I'll talk about it toward the end. I'm not an expert on liens, but I'll talk about it at the end. I don't want to dwell a lot of time 
I don't want to spend a lot of time on liens, but a good practice in contracting, if you're a contractor, if you're building stuff or if you've got supplies coming in or, or something, is provide a lien release with every payment. That's with every progress payment. So when you're done with the, you know, your general contractor, when you're done with the drywall, uh, when you get paid for that job, not only do you pay your subs, please pay your subs. Um, I just had a client who's dealing with a contractor who didn't pay his subs, and that's a nightmare. But please pay your subs, and when you pay your subs, uh, get, issue your customer a lien release. I have released this lien. It's good practice. It gives you a little bit more credibility with uh, that, that customer. And then finally, you want to put in a contract specifically what terminates the contract. So is it completion? Is it substantial completion? Is it, you know, whatever it is, what specifically terminates the contract? What, what, at what time do you go east and, and your customer goes west and, and you shall deal with each other no more unless you want to? That's pretty important. Um, words in a contract, words mean things. So what I've done is I've just written a, a whole series of, of things that you'll see in contracts. May, should, and shall. May means you might do it. Should means you should do it. Shall means you will do it, and if you don't, you're going to get a breach claim. So you gotta, you got to know those, those uh, uh, terms. To the satisfaction of. Now this is important. This is super important. Because if you're doing something that is to the satisfaction of your customer, that is a subjective standard. And in good faith, that customer can make you come back and do it over and over and over again until they are satisfied. You can't do it in bad faith, but in good faith, you can be running around the maypole for a very long time. If you use an objective standard, something like workmanlike manner, something like up to code, uh, it's much easier to adjudicate completion of a project. So that's something you've got you've to bear in mind. Uh, workman, uh, substantial completion is usually when a building is, or when a project is ready for occupancy, before a punch list. Habit of, uh, workmanlike manner, that's, that's a very fuzzy term that means if you're a professional contractor, you ought to behave in this manner. It's judge-made, so it depends on what you do as to exactly what workmanlike manner means. Habitability, uh, there's, a, there's a warranty of habitability out there that you should be aware of. Habitability used to mean back in the good old days, back in the Middle Ages, where um, if the house fell down, it wasn't habitable. Now it means if it's not up to the general standards of our first world, and, and we're not living like basically other Washingtonians are, it's not habitable. Uh, defective, what is a defect? That can get pretty specific, and I know the NAHB has, has defect standards out there that specifically say things like when you're pouring concrete and you have a crack that's 1 64th of an inch, that's not a defect, but if it's 1 16th of an inch, it is a defect. So refer to those specific standards. And then finally, significant, which is really, uh, it's a wide open term. 
what is significant to one is not necessarily significant to another. When we were negotiating the revisions to the Condominium Act back in 05, 06, whenever that was, um, we had a whole discussion about significance, about what rises to the level of significance. And we ended up putting a clause in there that a defect is not a defect unless it is significant to a reasonable person. I want to be the judge on the bench determining that one. But sometimes, the point is that in the law, sometimes you just can't get more specific than that. Uh, clauses and considerations you should know. Time, time is a big deal, especially among a lot of contractors. Generally speaking, if a contractor says, I'm going to have it done in two weeks and you do it in three, it's not that big of a deal. If the contract is written in such a way that time is of the essence, it's a big deal. So if you've got somebody who's like a flipper and they've got hard money burning a hole in their pocket and they want something done within a particular time frame and they've specifically called out time is of the essence, you better get it done on time because if you don't do it on time, it's a breach claim. So something that you really want to bear in mind. Indemnification hold harmless, these things are magic pills. Um, how many of you are familiar with indemnification clauses and use them frequently and know what they are? Good for you. Uh, an indemnification clause basically says that the other party, if there's a, a, a problem, that the other party will not only hold you harmless, but if you get sued because of that problem, they will step in your shoes and defend your lawsuit. Does that sound pretty good? That sounds pretty good if you're, if you're trying to protect yourself from liability. Um, a merger four corners uh, uh, clause is where you say that the terms of the contract are the terms of the contract and there are no other terms of the contract. How many remodelers have issues with, uh, with uh, change orders? I should see every hand in here going up. You all do. I know you do. Uh, but <clears throat> change orders are addressed by making sure that you have it in writing all the time. Sure, sure. A change order is uh, I have decided to put an addition on my house and I want a 15 by 10 room. And I have looked at the plans and I have agreed to a 15 by 10 room. But I look around and I go, ooh, that, that, that's really a little small. I'd like it to be 15 by 12. And you and your contractor orally say, oh, yeah, 15 by 12, yeah, good, good deal. Well, if you don't write it down, it turns into he said, she said, and it turns into that oral contract problem. However, if you document every change order and you, you best practices are you have your customer sign the change order, but failing that, you at least communicate, them, communicate with them via email, uh, as I was saying, or can document it in some manner, then you're, you're going to be able to enforce that change order. And I used to take the calls from the remodelers or the, uh, uh, the construction, uh, what was it? It was a construction mediation. I was, I was sort of the gatekeeper for the, the, the mediation process. Does the NBA still have that? Yeah, dispute resolution. So since I was the lawyer on staff, I was the guy who got to talk to the contractors. And what, what drove me nuts is about half the time, they were contractors who were speaking a different language than the consumers. 
And the consumer said, no, I was promised this. And then I'd talk to the contractor and he'd go, no, 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 I didn't promise that, I promised this, which was a slight variation, but very, but very meaningful. Um, and, and the other half of the time was on change orders. Well, I told him to, to change the color from red to blue and he didn't do that and you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, you can solve both of these issues by number one, speaking English, that's always helpful, uh, letting your customers ask you questions, understanding exactly what they're asking for, and don't walk away from the table with a signed contract until you do. Or, and <clears throat> when it comes to change orders, document them. Okay, we contracted for a 15 by 10 room. That's gonna be $25,000. Uh, now you want a 15 by 12, that's gonna be $27,000. And, and here's an email confirming that. And if they don't say anything about it, you've now got an additional $2,000 built into your contract, all things equal. So um, the, the Four Corners provision basically says, this written contract is the only contract there is and there are no side agreements. That way your consumer can't come back and say, oh well, but when I was talking about that roof, he said that he was gonna pitch it so and so. If it's not in the contract, it doesn't, if it, it doesn't hold up as long as you've got a four corners clause in it. Controlling law, uh, since we're in Washington, it's always gonna be Washington. Pay attention to it. Uh, there's a, there, I, I work with, uh, as I said, flippers quite a bit. And uh, there's some gurus who float around and say, you can make a million dollars in real estate and they have these boilerplate forms. And one of them is from California. And his boilerplate contract form says, any dispute will be resolved in the, in the course of the state of California. Well, that doesn't work so well if you're in Washington. So just pay attention to what controlling law is. Um, alternative dispute resolution, I'll talk about that a little bit later. The difference between courts, arbitration, mediation. Uh, waiver, non-waiver, if you put a waiver clause in your contract that says, I am not going to waive this contract and any behavior that I, that I uh, perform that's at odds with this contract is, does not mean that I'm making a new contract. Well, watch that clause because if you do that enough and if you do depart from what the contract says enough, your consumer is gonna sue you and say, no, 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 that waiver clause is meaningless. That's just, that's just boilerplate language. So you gotta, you gotta watch uh, that one. Damages versus penalties, I'll talk about that a little bit later. And finally, attorney's fees, not just because I'm an attorney, but in Washington State, if the contract says the prevailing party gets attorney's fees, they do. If it doesn't say they, don't, they get attorney's fees, they don't. So put a clause in every contract that you have that says the prevailing party in a dispute gets attorney's fees. Because I've seen it where you'll spend a whole bunch of time and money on a lawyer and you'll get a great judgment and you'll have $75,000 coming to you, but 60 of it's gonna go to your lawyer. And that's no good, except for me. Um, but I get paid even if there is an attorney's fees clause in there because $75,000 comes to you and 60 comes to me because the other side is now liable for my attorney's fees. So that's, that's, pretty, that's a pretty big deal. But in Washington State, if you don't have that clause in there, you're not gonna recover attorney's fees. Some tips for, for writing an effective contract. I, I already talked about these um, a little bit. Just the only thing about attorney's fees is that 
The one situation where you don't have to have attorney's fees in a contract is if you've got a suit for a violation of the Consumer Protection Act. In that case, you always get attorney's fees. But those cases are few and far between. And if you ever get sued and, and, and stuck with that one, it's going to be you who have to pay the attorney's fees. And that's not so good. Um, indemnity, I talked about an indemnification clause. In Washington, you can freely bargain for indemnity. So you stick an indemnity clause in there. If that's the basis of the bargain, if you and your, your uh, consumer have, have, have gone back and forth on, on the contract and that's part of the contract, it's in there. So that's another, that's another kind of helpful hint. Um, it's oftentimes resolved against the party drafting the indemnity agreement. So you may have, if you have an indemnity agreement in there, something goes wrong, uh, you may have to defend that indemnity agreement a bit more than what other words are in the contract because there is an interpretation against the person who drafted it. And you can't indemnify against your own negligence. But the good news is there is no negligent uh, there is no negligence allowed, at least against contractors in Washington, except when there is, and I'll talk about that. Um, schedule and scope of work. This is where most people fall down. And the, and the bottom line with schedule and scope of work is you have got to write it down. You've got to mean what you write. You've got to do what you say. If you're going to deviate from it, you've got to talk to your consumer. Uh, you, you can allow inspections from your consumer, and you should. If they want to see what you did, you should, you should look at it, or you should allow it to be looked at. And you want periodic payments so that you can check in regularly. So if you're doing a fairly sizable project, you don't necessarily just want to get paid in the middle and at the end. Uh, if you've got several phases to it, uh, you can, getting paid regularly is not a bad thing because it, it will increase your credibility with the, uh, with the consumer because every time that you get paid, you will provide them a lien release and you will give them peace of mind. Delays. We talked about this. Uh, this, is, um, this is time. Time is of the essence. Uh, time, time is of the essence, always goes both ways. If you say that you're going to get it done, yes. 10 minutes, okay. If you say you're going to get it done in a particular uh, period of time, you better get it done in a particular period of time if time is of the essence as part of the contract. Um, we'll talk about liquidated damages. Independent contractors, this is very controversial in Washington, has been for a number of years. Uh, when you hire someone, you, you can be hiring them as an independent contractor or you can be hiring them as an employee. And there's good reasons to do it both ways. But if you are hiring them as an independent contractor, and these are two cases. Hopkins is a case in the Ninth Circuit. These are both U.S. Circuit of Appeal cases. Hopkins is in the Ninth Circuit. Real is in the Fifth Circuit, which is sort of the Midwest. And these are standards that are out there for the independent contractor test. Basically, if you're hiring somebody as an independent contractor, they better bring their own tools, they better be determining their own schedule, their own methods uh, with you know, general direction. And the most important thing is if they're working exclusively for you, it's a burden. 
I mean, if they challenge you as, as to uh, whether you're a contractor or an employee, or whether they're a contractor or an employee, that's tough for you to prove if you're the only client they have. Now, if they're working for Jim and Sam and Bob and Sally and they have a, they have a business card and they're offering their services, they're most likely an independent contractor. But this is a huge trap that contractors can fall into, general contractors can fall into. So just be aware of it. Um, damage clauses. I uh, want to talk to you about damages versus penalties. And again, a recent client of mine who rents a room in Seattle for $450 was presented a lease that said that she was going to pay $100 a day penalty for late rent. Who thinks that's reasonable? <laughs> it's not. In contract law, there is a, a precept that says that you can't have a penalty clause. Now, a penalty clause is really an unreasonable penalty clause, and you can couch these things in terms of damages and get around it. But clearly, uh, when you're one day late with rent and your rent is 450 bucks a month, which means that your daily rent is $15, and you're gonna charge you 100 eight times more? No, six times more, seven times more, whatever it is. That's outrageous. So if you put a penalty clause in that is a big penalty clause, likely it will be overturned by some court. Um, you've got uh, consequential, compensatory, and liquidated damages. The way to get around a, a um, penalty clause in a contract is liquidated damages. You gotta call it liquidated damages instead of penalty. That will hold up a whole lot more a whole lot more often in courts. And what a liquidated damages clause is, is pretty much, it's damages that you would sustain if the other party breached, and they're not easily understood, they're not easily arrived at. For instance, we did uh, voter, con uh, voter identification stuff when I was at the MBA, and I'd, we'd go to Labels and Lists, it was just a company in Bellevue that does this kind of stuff, and they would hold the data. And we put a limited, uh, liquidated damages clause in that contract that said, if that data ends up in somebody else's hands, you're gonna pay us $10,000. Now, it wasn't a penalty clause because we didn't call it a penalty clause. I don't know what that list was worth if it got into somebody else's hands. We just agreed that it was gonna be worth $10,000. So if you've got a situation like that where if there's a breach and you don't know what the damages will be, agree with your client to put in a liquidated damages clause so that if this happens, this is worth $5,000 or this is worth $10,000 or this is worth whatever it is. I'm gonna skip over laws and equity because that's really kind of esoteric and I'm kind of running behind. Dispute resolution, <clears throat> this is, this is a, a part of the law that is not well understood. There's basically three ways to resolve a dispute. Just out of curiosity, how many of you put mediation clauses in your contracts? We've got a few. How many of you put arbitration clauses in your contracts? Okay, a few more. How many of you just say, go to a court of competent jurisdiction? Well, nobody, okay. Well, there's pluses and minuses to each one of these clauses, and you can, you can do more than one. You can have a mediation, then an arbitration. You can have a mediation, then you go to court. You can have 
arbitration, then you can go to court, you can, you can mix these things up. A mediation is where A sits in, room, in this room, B sits in this room, they have a dispute, they hire somebody to basically run back and forth and make a deal. So that person goes to A and says, what's your claim worth? It's worth $10,000, why? Because of, because of these reasons. So you go over to B and you say, you know, can you get to $10,000? Nope, it's not worth $10,000, here's why. Then he goes back over and, and that's what a mediation is. It's not, you two, it's not the two parties in the same room, it's somebody running back and forth trying to make a deal. Arbitration looks much more like a court proceeding where there is an individual, sometimes there's a couple or three individuals that are adjudicating your case. So what you do is you get up and you say, this is my case and here's why it is. Arbitration is quicker and easier than court because you don't have all the discovery and evidentiary uh, hurdles. Because when you, when you enter something into evidence in a court, you have to prove that it was in, in the proper chain of custody and it has to be, you know, the other side gets to object and, and it becomes a whole formal process. In fact, most criminal trials spend more time on admission of evidence and discovery than they do on the actual trial just because it's so formalized. Arbitration is basically a trial without all that formalization. And it's usually somebody who knows something about what you're, what, what you're engaged in. It's usually somebody who knows something about construction. Whereas if you go to Superior Court or Municipal Court, you're dealing with people who usually know absolutely nothing about your industry. And they're usually, they're usually pretty smart and they're usually pretty quick studies, but they get it wrong all the time. There's a, there's a, an argument that I will make to you for those of you who don't say just file a case in court of competent jurisdiction. Mediators are really, really expensive. And it's difficult to get resolution to a mediation if you've got somebody who doesn't want to come to resolution. Um, arbitrators can be very expensive as well and it can take a long time to get into arbitration. If you go straight to court, at least in the superior court system, you're going to go to court-ordered mediation or arbitration anyway. So, you know, think about how you do your dispute resolution. Uh, you might want to do it a different way. The way that you're doing it might make perfectly good sense, uh, but there are options out there. Um, consumers, this is a slide that I just, that I just put up there, and, and this is the don't feel like you're being put upon when a consumer wants to check you out. They should have that right. So they can look you up at L&I, they can check your bond, uh, you need to provide current insurance documents, they can put a, a clause in their contract, in fact, um, my flipper clients have this clause in their contract that says that we don't even want an insurance, we don't want insurance proof from you, we want authorization to go to your insurer and get it from them directly. Just, it's not that we don't trust you, but we don't trust you. Um, if if uh, you are a contractor on the up and up, shouldn't scare you a bit. Uh, let their attorney read it. Sometimes you'll find clients who you know, have to have their attorney read it. Sometimes it's overkill, but if that gives them peace of mind and you really want the job, give them peace of mind. Um, write it down. Write everything down, as I said earlier. Document everything, that's just good practice. 
Because if you ever get sued and you get in front of a judge and the judge says, well, what did you say? Well, I said this. What did you say? Well, I said this. And then the judge has got to sit there and go, okay, who detrimentally relied? What other standard? What's industry practice? And they just they lock up intellectually trying to figure out what's going on. If the other side says, I said X, and you say, I said Y, and here's a memorialization of that, the judge is going to be a whole lot more likely to say, you were right because you actually wrote it down, unless circumstances are such that the other side should prevail. Um, let's see here. Contractors can be sued for, oh, here's the one. Negligent building is not a cause of action allowed in Washington state. It is in many other states. So you can only be sued in contract law, not in tort law in Washington, which is important because in tort law you're allowed damages that you aren't allowed in, in contract. You can get sued for breach of contract, breach of warranty, uh, fraud, misrepresentation, uh, product liability, all this stuff. The Washington Supreme Court, in its infinite wisdom, about I don't know, five or six years ago, in a, in a case called Donatelli versus Strong, or Strong versus Donatelli, I can't remember which way it went, but this was an engineering firm that was going to uh, essentially draw property lines on a, on a plat or on a, uh, on, a, on a lot for a couple who were not technically engaged at all. They had a written contract, but over the course of their relationship, there were so many representations made back and forth that when this case finally got to the Washington Supreme Court, uh, Strong, who was the uh, engineer, argued that the basis of the Donatelli suit was in tort, which was um, uh, that they had, they had uh, committed negligence. And Strong said, no, 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 no. Negligence is not allowed. This is a contract case. This is not a torts case. At which point the court said, and this is, our, this is our wonderful Supreme Court, said basically, we don't, this is a direct quote from the case, because we don't know the scope of Strong's obligations, we can't determine if any of Strong's duties to the Donatelli's arose independently of the contract. So now we've got this thing called the independent duty doctrine in Washington. And what it means is that if you have a duty that arose independently of the contract, you may be able to be sued in tort, which is not a good thing, because that, that's personal injury, that's, you, you, you open, a, open up the damage gate a whole lot wider in tort cases than you do in contract cases. Well, the way to alleviate this is to write everything down so that you don't have this he said, she said that the Supreme Court couldn't, couldn't sort out. And the wonderful thing about our Supreme Court is they made this pronouncement and they didn't actually rule on the facts. So they said, we don't know, we don't know. You know, these facts are out, oh, I don't know. So they, they established this independent um, duty doctrine which is a mess. How much time do I have left? One minute, okay. That's why I put the bonds at the end. Um, there's a whole bunch of law about uh, uh, bonds and lien claims. Uh, I won't go into a lot of those details. Uh, they're found in 6004 of the RCW. Uh, the, the bottom line here is pay your subs. 
give the contractor or give the consumer a lien release, give them peace of mind. Um, there's a, a lot of law about a preclaim notice that that it's good practice to give your consumer a preclaim notice. You know what that is? That's where you say, I'm taking your job and oh by the way, I can file a lien against you and if I do, these are these are the things that might happen and and you should hold back some money at the end to get the final liens released and, and this sort of thing. Um, there's increasing case law that says that that may not be necessary to file a lien, but it's good practice. Just do it. If, you're, if, you're, if the uh, possibility of filing a lien is, is part of your practice. Uh, the timing of liens, you can look at that. Uh, not terribly important. And then finally, firing a contractor, uh, a consumer, anybody who, who um, retains a contractor can, file, can fire them for convenience, according to the Sack and Associates case in 2015. So basically, if there's a clause in the contract that says, I can fire you, I can fire you uh, at any time for any reason. Now, you'll be entitled to quantum merit, which is that, that thing that I said is the, is the preset that gives you uh, compens compensatory damages for whatever it is that you put into the project, but you can be fired for convenience. When that happens, pretty, pretty important. First of all, it's gotta be communicated. The, the consumer can't just decide one day, oh gee, you know, I don't like that contractor anymore, so I'm gonna hire this other contractor, and all of a sudden both of you show up and you don't know what's going on. That's not kosher. Um, be open to accepting payment to close the issue. So oftentimes what you can do is you can say, look, if you're gonna fire me, that's fine. Give me X dollars and I will give you a hold harmless clause agreement. And what that says is you will have no other claims against me. And that's important because if you are on a job and then somebody else takes it over and that other person alleges that you didn't do this right or that right or the other thing right, you're gonna end up in court. If you've got an indemnification to hold harmless, a final agreement that says we're done, then you don't have to worry about that. And then finally, um, uh, I didn't write it down, but again, with the liens, make sure your liens are clear when you, when you leave, just don't, leave that stuff hanging around. It's very intimidating for most consumers. It's even intimidating for a lot of lawyers and probably a lot of contractors. So you don't want that hanging around. That's done. All right, a lot of information. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, no problem. This was a presentation of Dunlumber in Seattle. For more content, or if we can help you with your next project, visit us online at dunlumber.com.